0: The scene in Paradise, California, is apocalyptic. The campfire...
1: 125 acres torched there, including the town of Paradise. Paradise was destroyed. The number of people missing is spiking. More than...
2: I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, Reclaiming Paradise. It's been six months since the campfire became the worst and deadliest wildfire in California history. Reporters Curtis Alexander and Lizzie Johnson have been spending time in Paradise and the surrounding communities in recent weeks. We're gonna ask Curtis about the rebuild, how it's going, and whether they should rebuild it all. Lizzie Johnson is going to tell us about the time she spent with the coroner that took over after the campfire and had one of the biggest jobs in state history identifying bodies, some of which were burned beyond recognition. First up, Curtis Alexander. Curtis Alexander, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Damian.
2: Curtis Alexander is a, an environmental climate change water reporter for The Chronicle. He's been here a number of years, uh, follows a lot of big issues for us, but in particular has been tracking the, the crisis in California over wildfires in recent years. Curtis, you have just been uh, following what's going on in Butte County six months after the campfire broke out. What's it like up there?
1: Well, to be honest with you, things haven't changed a whole lot since shortly after the fire. It's still a scene of a major disaster. Sure, the smoke's gone, and there's grass growing on the charred hillsides, and there's a lot of people out and about, mostly construction workers and cleanup crews. But when you look across the hillsides, they're still littered with the rubble of homes, and the streets in town are still lined with toppled shopping strips and raised fast food restaurants. There's progress being made, but considering just how big this fire was, it basically leveled an entire town of 27,000 people and 19,000 homes were destroyed, Uh, 19,000 structures were destroyed, 14,000 of them them being homes. So it's really going to take a while for this town to bounce back. Talking with the CalRecycle Agency which is spearheading the cleanup. It's a two billion dollar effort. They said that they've cleaned up about 17 17% of the properties so far and don't expect to be done with the cleanup until early next year.
2: So that's that's just getting the lots cleared. That's just getting the ash cleared up.
1: Yeah, that's just getting the ash cleared up. And then on top of that, they have to look into the whole process of essentially rebuilding an entire town.
2: Wow, so has anyone started building any homes yet?
1: There haven't been anybody who has started building a house yet. There have been people who have applied for building permits, maybe 40 or 50, and uh, maybe a dozen have been granted so far in Paradise and in the surrounding unincorporated communities.
2: Let me ask you a more basic question. Should Paradise rebuild, given the history of wildfires?
1: Well, that's a good question. As you know, there's been several wildfires around Paradise prior to the campfire, something like a dozen in the past 20 years within a mile or two of the town. So it's definitely a high-risk fire area, but it's really hard to tell a person who lives there, who has property there, who calls it home that they can't come back and build a house. Um, This is a problem across California. Um, Something like 11 or 12 million people live In the wildland urban interface which is like the forest lands where there's going to be fires so it's not just high fire risk in paradise it's high fire risk across california
2: and you've written a lot about that i mean are there ways that they can rebuild stronger
1: sure there are Um, i think all you can really do is ask them to try to make the communities a little safer by Building fire breaks around town, or thinning the forest around town a little bit, and by hardening the homes, making sure they don't have wood roofs or wood porches, and they have fire fire resistant windows and um, things like that that will uh, that will help the house if a fire does hit.
2: The devastation was so great. We've been talking a lot in the office just about you and I about you know where do you even start um tell me about like the schools tell me about the the stores how does the community begin when there's no one around
1: those are the questions that the community is trying to face right now they're really really big questions first and foremost the city has hired a consultant who helped with the recovery in new orleans after hurricane katrina and the consultant is helping them lay out a step-by-step plan for trying trying to rebuild the town and they're just trying to put that town together right now. As far as the schools go, eight of nine schools burned, only one has reopened, but the superintendent has said that she's hoping to get two schools open this fall, the high school and the intermediate school. And to her credit, she's hoping to to clean up Paradise High by June in time for the high school classes graduating ceremonies.
2: And for the for the stores for the shops, how do they reopen if the customers aren't there?
1: Right now, there are some customers there. You've got work crews going into the Save Mart, for example, and buying Gatorades and deli sandwiches for their lunch. So there is a lot of traffic during the day, but things like electronics and other purchases probably aren't happening. I went into uh, I went into one of the stores, the T-Mobile shop, and there was. There was nobody there. I don't think cell phones are probably a big thing right now. When I walked in, I was greeted by four or five sales representatives, which was great customer service. (laughs) But I can't imagine that that shop's doing a lot of business right now. Nearby, there's a a gym that I went into, and there weren't a lot of people in the gym either because there's not a lot of people in town. One guy was there because he's got family living with him. His in-laws are there because their house burned down and his brother is staying in a trailer in the front yard, so he just needed to get out of the house. So he was there at the gym to kill time. Another person was there because they just wanted to try to get back to the routine of normal life, which is, of course, really hard to do in paradise.
2: Yeah. What is it like just driving around there? What does it feel like?
1: It does feel like you're in a disaster zone. Everywhere you look, there's twisted metal and furniture poking out of the woods and, uh, most of the shops in town are gone. They're destroyed. And it's been a very slow cleanup process.
2: But you write that some of the cars that were burned as people tried to flee are still sitting along the road.
1: Yeah. In driveways where the cleanup crews have not arrived yet, it looks like it did just after the fire. There may be a car in the driveway, a car at the curb, and uh, they're burned. And uh, as you get farther and farther out of town, you see more and more of this destruction that still sits there.
2: Wow, a few other things I think people might be wondering six months later: Do we have an official cause of the campfire yet?
1: Cal Fire, which is the official agency investigating the fire, is still looking into the source of ignition. They haven't said what it is, and they tend to they tend to keep things quiet. However, PG and E has as much as admitted that they may be behind the fire. In an earnings report in February, they told their shareholders that a power line was the probable source of ignition. And the company has since stocked away about $10 billion for liability. And as you know, they declared bankruptcy or filed for bankruptcy protection back in January. The district attorney in Paradise is also conducting uh, his own investigation into the fire, which suggests that there may be criminal charges. And that's a lot different than the wine country fires. Many of the fires in wine country were caused by PG&E with the exception of the Tubbs fire. And those fires, there were no criminal charges brought in any of those cases.
2: And in Paradise, there was a big issue with the evacuation routes out of that mountain town. Are they going to do anything there? Are they going to widen roads, add new roads?
1: There's only so much they can do because most of the town is in private hands. But what they can try to do is look for people who may not be coming back, try to get them to sell their property and perhaps take that space and turn it into a public good, be it a park, a road, a place for a business. The town council is now working with the consultant to figure out where the pinch points were during the fire and trying to come up with perhaps new thoroughfares around those pinch points, we're trying to widen some of the main roads so that if there is another problem in town, people will be able to evacuate safely.
2: Okay, the last thing I want to ask you, because I know people will be curious, is it's May, the rainy season looks like it's about over. Uh, what is there anything that can tell us whether we face another big fire season this year?
1: It's hard to know what the fire season this year is going to look like There was a report issued this week by the National Interagency Fire Center that suggests along the West Coast, the risk will be particularly high, and uh, it's going to be higher toward the end of the year. We had a very wet, snowy winter, so in the next couple of months, things will still be drying out. There won't be severe fire danger, but once the brush and the vegetation starts to cure in August and September, that's when they think the fire danger will be elevated Of course, it's going to depend on whether we have winds, whether we have lightning, whether we have heat spells like we've had in past years. And in those cases, it could be very difficult.
2: All right, Curtis, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Damien. All right. When we come back, we'll have Lizzie Johnson on as well. She's going to be talking about the coroner's operation, one of the biggest in state history that had the big job of trying to identify some of the (laughs) victims. Welcome to Lizzie Johnson, uh, staff writer at The Chronicle. You've been here four years, and you've been our lead on the wildfire disasters of the last couple years. You are also writing a book about the campfire. Uh, Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. You are my boss, so I don't think I had much of a choice on that.
2: (laughs) Great. Now, you did have a choice. You did have a choice, but we wanted to uh, ask you about this incredible article that you're writing about the coroner's operation at the campfire. How did you come to this story?
0: So after wildfires, I always have these really long lists of story ideas, things that you can't necessarily do right away because of access or timing or the really tight deadlines. And at the top of my list was the coroner. Like, how did they identify all of these victims from the ash in paradise, where oftentimes all that was left were a few fragments of bones or teeth? It was the biggest body mass fatality operation in recent history. And the Sacramento County coroner, Kim Ginn, was largely tasked with that.
2: Yeah, I remember we talked about it a lot after the fire. What what must have this been like? And and at some point you you went to the you went to the coroner and, and said, hey, can we can we check it out?
0: Yeah. And it was really funny. I called her and was like, hey, I really want to do a story about you. And she was like, I was waiting for someone to call me. I've been ready. This was a huge operation. I don't understand why no one was covering it. So I drove up to Sacramento after that and spent an afternoon in the morgue with her.
2: Yeah, and obviously it's a, a, a profound amount of loss, and, and I think that's what um, what drew you right to the story was the idea that so many people had died, and 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 the sort of magnitude of the task that the coroner had ahead of them. How did they? How did this all start? Um, and how did they go about uh, the job, and what made it so difficult?
0: Yeah, so the campfire happened on November 8th of last year, and the day after the Butte County Sheriff's Office started recovering bodies. Now, keep in mind Butte County is a more rural county in the northern part of the state, and they do not have a central morgue. They rely on funeral homes and parlors to store bodies for them. But many of those, those homes have been destroyed by the fire, so they really didn't have a spot for all of these these people who had perished in a really violent and awful way. So that's where Kim, the Sacramento County coroner, comes in. The California Office of Emergency Services, which handles these really large emergencies, has a special branch for coroners. And so they called her and said, hey, we really need your help. Can we start bringing these decedents to you? And she said yes.
2: Wow, and and you you write about all of the different challenges that this office faced. Now, obviously, they're they're used to handling uh, death reports, but what were the particular challenges of of the eighty six people we know so far have died in the campfire?
0: Yeah, so the science of this and the procedure of it was very interesting because it's not as simple as going out there and finding bodies to be perfectly blunt. Oftentimes all that was left were a few bones or some teeth and figuring out who people are based on that is really really difficult. Um, The people who were digging through the ashes oftentimes didn't have much anthropology experience so they were having issues deciphering whether it was bone or cement siding or the remains of a cat stuff like that. So all of these these things started pouring into Sacramento, and it was Kim and her team's job to figure out who they belonged to and who these people were. Because you have to remember at the other side, their families were waiting in the most profound kind of grief because they had no closure. They couldn't have a funeral. They couldn't close bank accounts. They couldn't alert the government that their loved one had passed away. And I think Some of them were probably still living with hope, even though they knew it was a foundless hope that maybe they were still alive. So it was Kim's job to link those two things. How do we get through and do the science on what's left to bring closure to the people who really need it?
2: Now, you spent time with Kim Jin, and I know obviously that you spent a lot of time in the early going after the fire with crews that were going and and digging through the the rubble of these homes, what, um, what is it like for these people that are on the front lines?
0: Yeah. So obviously Kim's entire job is processing death reports. So she views it more of like a mission. It is this thing she has to do to get to the end means, which is to bring peace to families. Kim is a petite woman from Alabama. She has a slight Southern drawl and she loves her job. She views it as her mission and her calling to Try and figure out the clues of death, figure out why someone passed away, and alert their families to give them a sense of peace. She's not the, the very soft kind of emotional figure that you would imagine her to be because she is just so driven by this calling. You have to remember that she also processes around 7,000 death reports annually in Sacramento County. So I think she compartmentalizes a bit better because she's used to it. It's her job. That's what she signed on for. But in Paradise and the surrounding communities of Megalia and Concow, the people that were sifting through the ash, they lived there. They were from those communities. And that wasn't a job that they signed on for when they got hired as a sheriff's deputy or a police officer. And when I was shadowing a search and rescue team right after the campfire, you could see that the emotion of that was seeping around the cracks a little bit. They had um, special people there with them. In case they needed to talk and process what they were seeing. So I think it was a bit harder for the people on the ground to double trauma. Their community is gone and they're searching for the people that were their neighbors.
2: Um, I want to get back to the coroner's operation. And what's so amazing about the piece that you write is uh, the way that you use a a particular case of one um, victim who is referred to by the the uh, authorities as Doe D. Um, How did you come to this story? And can you kind of walk us through the the sort of quest to identify this man?
0: Yeah. So I went into the coroner story not knowing exactly what my angle would be. It's something that I figure out along the way most of the time. And I had asked her rather offhand what the hardest to identify case had been. In a couple of days, she got back to me and detailed exactly how hard it had been to identify this man known as Dodi for a lot of reasons. Namely, he didn't have dental records in the area. He didn't have any known living biological family members. And they had no way of linking these remains found in his home that they knew were probably belonging to this one man. But there was no way to prove it.
2: And they, they couldn't simply say, oh, it's probably him.
0: No, because... You know, a false identification is worse than no identification. You really have to be confident about these things. You can't just be, well, they're probably in here. Because what if someone else had wandered into their house or something like that?
2: Okay, so they, they don't have any dental records to compare to the to the remains. No family members to do the DNA comparison. How do they end up, uh, end up, they end up making the identification?
0: Yeah, so it was a massive effort. Um, the Department of Justice's Missing Persons Unit was also helping, and so they had gotten contact with a hospital in the East Bay, Kaiser Permanente, and Dodi um, had gone there in the 1980s for a hernia surgery, and the hospital happened to still have that sample. So the Department of Justice sent it to Sacramento, and they compared the DNA profile of the man they had found in Konkow to this biopsy tissue result, and... It was a match it was like one trillion to one the odds of a false positive and it took them months it was february by the time they identified him
2: so tell me about the victim that they ended up identifying
0: yeah so dodie was a man named bill godbout and he was a minor celebrity in silicon valley because he identified one of the key components of the first personal computer it's called a bus it allows the the brains of the computer to interact with mice and keyboards basically allowing the user to interact with it. And he had moved to Kankau for more affordable housing, lived with his wife and his stepdaughter and his stepdaughter's partner. And that's where he was when the fire hit. The thing is, he had no known living biological family. That means his wife couldn't go in or his stepchildren because they were not DNA matches. It would have had to be his mother or father, his siblings or his children.
2: So then do they notify his family?
0: Yeah. So remember, he had no known living biological family, so there were no parents or siblings to alert that this was Bill. But they did let his wife and his stepchildren know, and they found out the day before Valentine's Day, which was the day before his anniversary with his wife. And they just talked about feeling so much relief knowing that they could move on with their lives. That they had a sense of closure because before it was like an open wound they didn't really know what to do or what to do next because they just had no answers and now they finally had an answer
2: so lizzie is this operation that you described still going on six months later
0: yeah there are 12 more ids in sacramento that need to be made and kim is working with the department of justice on that using SNP technology which is what they use to identify the golden state killer just a more intense way of of breaking down the DNA.
2: And comparing sometimes to distant family members.
0: Exactly. So someone who doesn't have a known living biological family member, they have to resort to this other technology to confirm their identity.
2: Okay. Well, Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on. Your your work has been incredible ever since the the campfire, and we thank you for sticking with it.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Thanks so much to Curtis Alexander and Lizzie Johnson for joining us, to Libby Coleman for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening.
1: Fifth Emission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network.
2: If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing.
2: You can support 5th and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle.
1: There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.